Hello. Uh, we had some technical problems uh, with our usual platform where we record the podcast on, so we switched to Zoom. The matrix is um, <laughs> Yeah, we're not the only ones with uh, problems today because all the uh, riders, I mean, Brad Binder, then Paul Espargaro and Rolf Fernandez uh, DNF'd because of technical problems. So I guess this Sunday is cursed. But um, yeah, we uh, definitely had a very uh, entertaining Moto3 and Moto2 race, but the MotoGP race for me was uh, yeah overshadowed by the whole Pekka situation because we didn't know what was going on. And um, from the looks of it, it's not as bad as it uh, seemed to be. Apparently, there are no broken bones and... Apparently, he has just a severe polytrauma. And I guess when you consider all the circumstances, I mean, he high-sided and then spun over the track. So if he was 180 degrees on the other side, uh, I mean, it could have been a lot worse now. So I guess considering everything, uh, he was lucky and uh, everybody around in the MotoGP world was lucky because it could have been so much worse. And it's very surprising to me that uh, he didn't have any uh, broken bones. He doesn't have any broken bones. Um, but it's good news, I guess. I hope he'll be back soon. The next race weekend in Misano, I'm quite sure he will miss. But at the end, we don't know how how his injuries are. But it just freaked me out the entire time because we didn't know what was going on. Only after the race, we kind of found out. And it was very, very, a very strange feeling, and I couldn't really enjoy the race. Yeah, so first of all, hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Bad Moto GP podcast. As Leo said, we did have technical difficulties. Not the first people today to have them in Europe, but we worked through them as we always do. And as he said, we are coming to you live in the immediate aftermath, fresh off the press from Barcelona, Catalonia. And I don't want to spoil the race for anybody, but like Leo said, we do have to address first and foremost Paco Banyaya's pretty horrific injury that unfortunately he suffered at the beginning of the race. So for those of you that haven't seen the race, in turn two, just at the beginning of the race, Paco Banyaya suffers a pretty horrible high side from his Ducati. Bike high sides him, throws him onto the track, and he basically spins like a bottle 360 degrees on the track like leo said and about 180 degrees into the spin brad bender who's right behind Paco banyaya literally cannot get out of the way he unfortunately directly runs over Paco banyaya's lower legs um and we thought that Paco might have broken both of his legs might have been a truly terrible injury it could have been a hell of a lot worse had it been the head obviously thankfully it wasn't but our thinking was, you know, Pekka might have broken his leg, something terrible might have happened. And thank God that does not appear to be the case. And um, we've received an update from James Dalman at CrashNet MotoGP, who has reported that um, the, the doctor for MotoGP, his name alludes me at the moment, but the head doctor of MotoGP has reported severe polytrauma. Um, which is obviously not great, but it could be a lot worse. Basically, what that means is it looks like pretty severe bruising of the legs, but it does not appear to be broken bones, which is obviously what we all want to avoid. 
Now, as it pertains to the championship and as it pertains to the immediacy of the future, it looks like Peko's going to miss Mizano and he might miss the week beyond that. I don't know, but our only hope at the moment is that Peko's okay, he recovers quickly and that his injuries aren't that serious. So glad we addressed that. Yeah, and uh, it's very strange because he had a very weird high side because usually the Ducatis, they um, they don't, or basically no bag has on throttle high sides except the Honda. So the Ducati, the electronic is so proficient and the bike is so well set up that it's very rare that we see a on throttle high side out of a Ducati or for the sake of it out of any bike except the Honda. But his high side looked like a cold tire and apparently um apparently he that's the thought of Luca Marini uh, as well and mm -hmm. apparently he didn't warm up his tire enough and was pushing too hard because the track temperature was just 33 degrees and not like 50 how it was last year so he had a very, very good start. And I could imagine he tried to push a lot at the beginning to get rid of the Aprilias. But um, yeah, I mean, very, very strange high side. We rarely see in MotoGP anymore. It looked like, like a 500cc high side. But um, take Honda out and you don't see on, on throttle high side. So it's very strange. And he landed like in the worst spot on the track you could land in because there were bikes around him and not just Brett Binder, but everybody did a very good job of evading him. And yeah, it could have been so much worse in it. You know what really freaked me out when there, I mean, I don't mind showing the replays because we saw it on TV. Why not show it again? I mean, it's okay to try to understand what happened and if you're a fan and get annoyed by it just don't look at the tv because they're saying the pit lane will open in whatever five minutes ten minutes but mm -hmm. if you want to see what actually happened there and uh digest it in a way uh, i'm fine with it other people have different opinions but what i don't like is putting the camera like in the medical center where his girlfriend is standing and she is absolutely agree very very scared that i don't want to imagine what uh, she went through in those whatever 15 minutes where she didn't know what was going on with him um that is not okay in my opinion and to put a camera like in her face where davide tadozzi is trying to to calm her down or whatsoever um it's just ridiculous in my opinion. I mean, show the replay. Everybody saw the replay uh, because we just saw the broadcast and it was directly on the broadcast. So I don't necessarily mind doing this, but to put the camera in the medical center where people close to him are very, very scared for his well-being. And that's that's not okay in my opinion. Yeah, I'm really glad I'm really glad you brought this up, Leo. Um, because Dorna on social media, I'm sure people have probably seen this already. Dorna have been getting um basically shot to pieces for this, and quite rightly so. Um, you know, look, I'm with you on this, um, and people will have very differing opinions about this, and I completely understand that. I have no problem with showing the replay because it's racing and people want to know what happened. And when 
when the racing is so fast paced, it can be easy to miss what exactly caused the injury. So people might just want to see it purely out of concern. Not not everything is about voyeurism or wanting to revel in somebody's injury because that would be horrible. But showing the injury is relatively fair game. I have no issue with that. But where I do have an issue with this is in exactly what you mentioned. You know, Paco Benia's per fiance is terrified. You know, like her, we don't know what's happened to Paco. She's worried that her fiance might have broken both of his legs and his season might be over. Davide Tardazzi's trying to take care of her and try and calm her down because he doesn't know what's going on. We don't need to see that. You know, Jesus Christ, Dorna, show a bit of discretion. You know, we don't need to see Paco's loved ones and close team members as they're worried what's happened to not only their rider, but their friend and their companion. You know, we really need to draw a line here and we really need to respect boundaries at some point. The The replay of the actual injury, I, I get that. People want to see that. People want to see what's happening on the track. But I don't need to see Paco Banyaya's fiance, who's naturally hysterical at what's happened, because she cares about him. We all care about him. We don't need to see her worked up into a frenzy over what's happened with the injury. And we don't need to see cameras in the medical center either. You need to do a lot better than that, Dorna. Yeah. And if it's necessary to show the replay 10 times, I don't know. It's up for speculation. But uh, I guess they have to show something. And I would rather see the replay 10 times than uh, his uh, girlfriend or fiance. I don't know if they're yeah, soon to be married. I don't know. I believe they but, are. Yeah, whatever. Happy for them that they found each other. But I don't know the state of their relationship. And um, yeah, I'm, I just don't know what the fuck they're trying to achieve by this. I mean... Show a replay, cool. I mean, they're getting a lot of criticism for this, but I don't necessarily care. But I mean, yeah, it's crazy. And I don't, I mean, if I'm in the situation of her, I wouldn't want to have a camera put in my face. So, exactly. I mean, the, the thing you have to ask yourself is what the hell Dorna are trying to get out of this you know like as like I've just said I, I know this might sound like I'm repeating myself you need to show the you need to show the incident fair enough whatever that's one thing but don't be sticking cameras and family members faces when they're going through trauma and they're going through difficulty because they don't know if their loved one suffered a serious injury or not you know, have a bit of class, Dorna. We don't need to see that. And you haven't achieved anything by showing us that. We know they're probably hysterical. We don't need to... We're, we're better than that. We we have to be better than that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say too much because like Jose Mourinho would say, if I speak, I'm in big trouble. But Dorna, sort yourselves out. I mean, come on already. You're supposed to be a professional organization. I mean, the professional out of this organization has longer has been long gone. Exactly. So, um, yeah, what do we expect? But coming back to the actual on-track action, um, the incident between uh, Inia Bastianini and all the other Ducatis in turn one, I don't know how you saw it. Uh, I would like to hear your opinion about it. Yeah, so... The Inea Bastianini situation is really interesting. Um, 
there's kind of two schools of thought on it and i'm not entirely sure where i i have an idea of where i stand but i'm not kind of concrete yet so basically anaya bastianini starts middle of the pack immediately gets over to the right hand side of the track basically cuts across everybody to get to the apex he then horribly misjudges it going into turn one he actually hits the back he hits the rear tire of johan zarko Per Johan Zarco, man, I mean, Jesus Christ, the guy's just a magnet for anything that goes wrong in MotoGP. He hits Johan Zarco, forces him into a high side, and then skittles into Marco Bezzecchi and a couple of other riders. I think he hit uh, Fabio Di Antonio as well. Yeah. And he, he just skittles all these other riders and forces them out. You know, Bezeki's bike's ruined. Johan Zarko's nearly died yet again. Um, and yeah, it's just, to be honest, um, it was just really, really reckless from Enea Bastianini. Um, he's tried to dive in for space that just isn't there and is never going to be there. And not only that, but he's cooked the brakes and he can't get out of the situation that he's put himself in. So... As far as that situation goes, and likewise, I'm really eager to hear your thoughts on this as well. There definitely has to be a penalty of some sort. Um, now, the severity of it, I don't really know what way you judge it, because it is a first lap incident, and I get that. But I don't think a long lap penalty is going to be anywhere near enough. You know, he, he's, he's ruined five or six riders race at the opening lap. And this guy is a world championship caliber rider. He knows better than to do this. He's gone into an apex. He's half cocked it and he's completely messed it up. So we might be looking at, you know, starting from the back of the grid next race, something like that. But it's it's a real messy move. And Enea Bastianini knows a lot better than to do that. Yes. And when we talk about Inea Bastianini, we have to talk about Takanakagami last year because we yes. saw more or less the same incident last year mm -hmm. where there was no penalty. So I guess along a penalty is an improvement here. But uh, in my opinion, it's utterly ridiculous that Inea Bastianini tries to win the race in the first corner. He had a good start. He passed a lot of people, but he misjudged his breaking point so badly that it's almost not worthy of a world champion. And he is a world champion. He should know better. Everybody in MotoGP should know better because this is very, very dangerous. If you play this game of bowling, I mean, look at how Mark Marquez got ridiculed publicly after his uh, thing in in uh, Portimao or Takanakagami mm -hmm. or Jorge Martin. I mean, there was this big, big shitstorm going on. And with Marc Marcus, it was obviously more because he's Marc Marcus and Enea Bastinini, I don't know, I guess it was overshadowed a lot by the Picuanier situation. So it's not the only thing we're talking about here. And uh, But if you look at it is um, isolated, he misjudged his breaking point. He put four other people in severe danger. And Aleix Espargo was very lucky that he didn't get collected. Mm -hmm. And uh, in my opinion, you should punish those errors very, very harsh. A long lap or a double long leg isn't going to cut it for me. He apparently injured himself uh, with a broken hand and broken foot, I believe, but also nothing official yet. So mm -hmm. we have to uh, wait for an official statement there. But um, <laughs> yeah, I would... Uh, 
I would ban him for a race. I mean, it can't happen because you put other people in so much danger if you and it's it wasn't like a fabio situation in jerez where just a gap which kind of closed was closed mm. and i also think that the Jorge martin situation in austria wasn't as um as obvious at this one i mean mm -hmm. with Jorge martin there was a lot of uh if buts and maybes uh like what uh what was he going to do and all of this stuff but with inia it's clear he Braked too early, uh, too late. I'm sorry, he should have uh, braked earlier. And I mean, there's not much to say. Uh, I would jump on these situations and give them severe penalties, and not be micromanaging other th uh, other things. So, in my opinion, a world champion, a pro MotoGP rider should know better than this and i don't care if this was tailwind i don't care if he was caught in slipstream i don't care because everybody's in this situation and it shouldn't happen you should always be a little more careful than be a little more aggressive in those situations you know because you're, no putting, you're putting other riders at risk that's basically all, all i'm trying to say no listen leo i absolutely agree with you you know you cannot you cannot go into the first corner half cocked and not expect that to end up badly. You know, this is the kind of BS I expect from Darren Binder. I don't expect it from Anea Bastianini. This is unacceptable. It doesn't matter what way you slice this. It doesn't matter what way you try to defend it. It doesn't matter if Anea Bastianini injured himself. It doesn't matter. You cannot do that. It's not conduct befitting a world championship rider it just is not you cannot misjudge that so badly and like you said you made another very good point you cannot go in and put up four or five other riders health and well-being at risk by trying to win the race in the first corner it's not acceptable and it's not on johan zarko is extraordinarily lucky he wasn't severely injured in that crash because if, if um, I can't remember whose bike it was, it might have been Alicia Spargo's, I could be wrong. But if somebody's bike had been half a second earlier in hitting him, it would have hit him on the back of his head and it could have been a severe head injury. You know, this kind of behavior has to stop and we have to stamp this out. You know, long lap penalties aren't going to cut it anymore because they're not listening. They are not listening. We're seeing the same dangerous behavior again and again. And like you said, I'm not his biggest fan. But Mark Marquez got absolutely toasted for doing the same thing at Portimao. Fabio Quartararo got criticized for it as well at Jerez. The difference with the Quadraro crash and some of the other crashes we've seen is that at least there was a semblance of a gap to go for. There was no gap here. There never was a gap. There was never going to be a gap. Enea went in recklessly half-cocked, trying to force his way through in the opening turn when there was no gap there, when every other rider had the racing line, and he just thought, screw it, I'm going to go in and bowl everybody every way and we'll see what happens. This has to be punished, and this has to be something like a race ban because we cannot condone that. The thing what annoys me the most, he got a long lap for it. And I don't know how the long lap is phrased, if it was particularly for the uh, GP in Catalonia or the next race he attends. Hopefully it is you have learned from the Mark Marcus situation. But um, what annoys me a lot is when you 
take other long lap penalties? Like, what is worth a long lap penalty? Is what Inea Bastianini did as bad as violating track limits five times? No, is, not even near. Is Inea's, uh, Inea's crash as bad as shortcutting a chicane where you get a double long lap? If I'm right, or you just get a single long lap, I don't know. But is it is it the same? No. And then you have the Mark Marcus situation in Portugal. He got a double long lap for it, and or was supposed to get a long lap for double long lap for it. Is Ineas situation as bad as Mark? Now you can compare, okay? But usually, what you get with uh, an incident where you get a long lap for it's not comparable. So I think we need to start debating like what Dennis Öncü did to um, to David Munoz. Was it as bad as what Inea did? No, but he got a double long lap for it and Inea just got one long lap. So what are we doing here? I mean, it it's utterly ridiculous. It annoys me a lot that we have to talk about the stewards again and their incompetence. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it is what it is. And unfortunately, people, I know you probably don't enjoy us talking about it any more than we enjoy having to talk about it. But as long as this keeps happening, we have to try and hold these people to account because it is honestly like chimps riding unicycles that are running the stewarding. There is no other explanation for this. Like you said, you know, is what Enea Bastianini did even on the same level as touching some green paint? No, it isn't. Is it the same as cutting a chicane because you're forced out that way? No, it isn't. The fact is, this might actually be the worst year I can ever remember for stewarding because this has been at nearly every single race we have had to talk about the stewards in one of the classes for one reason or another, and they just cannot get it right, Leo. They cannot. Now, I don't know what the solution is, but there has to be a solution because this is actively starting to ridicule and hurt the sport. In fact, I take that back. It already has done that. And I rem I keep coming back to the episode when Maddie Patterson was on the podcast and Maddie said, you know, this is hurting the product. You know, at the end of the day, we are here because we love MotoGP and we want MotoGP to be what F1 is. We want it to be popular with millions and millions and millions and millions of people all across the planet. And we're not going to get out of Europe at this point if we can't get this fixed. This is becoming a problem because every single weekend, these stewards manage to balls up one decision or another. And it's becoming a very real problem. And I don't know how bad this has to get before they're willing to do something about it. I really, really don't. I have the solution. And uh, I've heard or I've been told that Kara Abraham has, or Kara Hanika, I don't know. One, I, I believe it is Hanika. I believe it was Hanika. But um, he apparently has a degree in uh, law and is a pro motorcycle racer. So we should be able to write a rule set and then have somebody who has experienced both sides, like an actual motorcycle racer and uh, 
uh, and a lawyer to judge those incidents based on the rule set. This would be great. And not, that would be great. Uh, those fucking idiots there. And I'm still in a, with the opinion that I'm a better steward than uh, those people are. I mean, I don't they're, disagree they're with you. Very, very good at track limits, but the rest is bad. And it is so annoying that you have a good, I mean, we had a very good race. And also, we had a very, very, yeah, bad first corner and bad second corner. But still, we end up talking about the stewards because we only get like one long lap and it's ridiculous. But okay. But um, yeah, back to the race. And I would like to discuss with you Aprilia and Elish and how good they and how dominant they were. Well, Aprilia, I mean, this weekend, Aprilia have been nothing short of outstanding. I mean, <laughs> I mean, Aprilia have been absolutely brilliant and they deserve all the credit that they are going to get and rightfully so. I mean, Alicia Spargo looked nearly untouchable all weekend. In qualifying, he looked great. In the sprint race, he looked unbelievable. And in this longer race today, the normal conventional race, he looked absolutely fantastic. And look, obviously with the normal race, people, some people are going to say if Peko had stayed on the track, would the result have been different? To be honest, based on their form this weekend, I think Aleish might have gone on to challenge for the win anyway. Um, Obviously, it's extremely unfortunate what happened to Ducati today, but this was just one of those weekends where Aprilia, it all came together. They looked untouchable, and they looked absolutely outstanding all weekend. Um, Actually, on the note of Aprilia, did you see the Dorna World Feed replay of the tires? Did you see um, yeah, Alicia's yeah. front tire? It was so chewed up by the end. But, it looked like a 30, 40-year-old tire. It was unbelievable. Yeah, but Mavericks looked even worse, and that's apparently the reason why he dropped off towards the end. But yeah, I totally agree with you. If Paco uh, was on the grid, I think he would have challenged for the podium. But mm. I don't think he would have challenged for the victory. And the only hope he would have is being in front. And then um, if his crash didn't happen, then Alej would have had a very, very bad start. And Maverick also wouldn't be in the lead after turn three. So, um, yeah, I think that this would be good for him. And then the whole race would have played out differently. But like, if you give Aprilia a good start, then I don't think anybody's beating them. Mm. And uh, I was also in a very, very uh, weird state of mind during the race because I thought, okay, on one hand, I would like Aleish to win because it's his home <laughs> race and he fucked up bad last year and <laughs> I really would like to uh, to root for him. But then on the other hand, you had Maverick and he's been through it all. Mm-hmm. And now he's finally at the brink of being the first rider who wins for the three different manufacturers. That's right. That would have been awesome. So, yeah, a bit weird. But, I mean, at the end, Aleish did everything right. He managed his tires better than Aleish, uh, better than Maverick, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And um, he just deserved everything. And the celebration after the race was very, very cute where they swapped bikes and uh, LA's children giving him the trophy was very cute. And also the the celebrations in the park for me was amazing. So yeah, I'm all here for Aprilia's uh, race wins. 
Can I just say, by the way, and this is going to sound really weird to people, but there's actually something I do want to give Dorna props for. I know this is going to sound really weird, but stick with me. The sprint race yesterday, when they rode along the road to go celebrate at the Monster Energy Supercross part of the track, I thought that was fucking brilliant. I absolutely loved that part. That was really, really, really cool. I enjoyed that a lot, so just want to give props for that. I thought that was a great addition to the sprint race. But yeah, as far as Aprilia go, it, it's a great dilemma to have because you have two riders who not only get on as well as they do, but they're both very likable. You know, you know, if you've been a motorcycle fan for any period of time, you know why we love Alicia Spargo. He's he's never been the most talented rider, but he's the hardest working rider. And all in the years of his Grand Prix career, he's been ridiculed. He's been mocked. He's always been that guy who is average at best. And now he's you see what he's done with Aprilia and he's finally getting his flowers, which he absolutely deserves. And then you see with Maverick as well, like you said, a guy who's been through it all. He's won with Suzuki. He's won with Yamaha. He's nearly blown a Yamaha up. And now he's on Aprilia. You know, it, they're just two guys who are really, really likable and who you could easily root for all day, every day, all season long. And I think one point that I would like to mention and that a point that I think really helped Aprilia today was the launch. Um, you know, this has been a continuous point that we've talked about all season. If Aprilia can fix that launch device and that clutch, they would be nearly untouchable because that bike is so good. It is that V4 is so good. Um, and what Noane have done with that bike is a little short of incredible. And what I noticed from the start, well, from the restart of this race, is that Maverick Vinales, for once in his life, got a brilliant launch off the line. He actually launched, <clears throat> excuse me, he actually got the best launch off the line out of anybody. And that's how he got out in front. It was unbelievable. I actually thought it was a leash that was out in front because I didn't think it could ever be Maverick. But he shot out in front front and he built up that lead really really well and i gotta say aprilia just deserve all the credit in the world because they have really really been trying and working and you're seeing it pay off now yeah and Alesh counted the laps right so everything... and he counted the laps yeah. right they got him an abacus it worked <laughs> what's a little bit sad that miguel Oliveira dropped off towards the end i would have really yeah. liked to see an all aprilia um of all a brilliant podium, but I guess he's happy that he didn't get taken out in the first corner. So mm -hmm. small mercies and yeah. all that, but I mean, yeah, Miguel Oliveira, another rider that had a great weekend this weekend, looked really, really solid. And like you said, for most of that race, was running terrifically. I did think he had third place sewn up. I'm guessing he probably had tire issues. They probably just wore out and he fell back towards the end. But he should be very happy with his weekend as well, Miguel Oliveira, because he had a great weekend this weekend. Yeah. And Fabio Quattararo also had a good weekend. Mm. And what's fun is they went back to the 22 bike, basically. Yep. And the 22 arrow package. And it's just fun how Yamaha, whatever they do, they always go back to this and uh, <laughs> remain... Yeah, remain as good as they were in 22 while everybody else is uh, developing. Yeah. So, yeah, just Yamaha things. But it could be worse. It could be Honda. So, um, I mean, good weekend for Fabio. He showed why he is uh, still a very, very good rider. And I just hope he gets on this Aprilia uh, when 
Maverick or Aleish make a room. So, well, if Aleish is retiring next year, imagine fa- imagine a Yamaha reunion at Aprilia. Oh yeah. boy, that would be pretty sweet. But yeah, I mean, I got to give Fabio a lot of credit as well. Fa- Yamaha, you don't deserve any credit. This is not for you. This is for Fabio. You know, like you said, and I actually noticed this at the beginning of the race, they went back to the 2022 Aero package at the front of the bike, and it actually did look better. I mean, to be fair, you could get a go-kart, and it would be better than what they've done this year. But the 2022 Aero seemed to just work a lot better um, this weekend. Uh, The Yamaha at least wasn't getting overtaken by everybody, so that's something. But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, Fabio showed why he, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, this is why Fabio is arguably still the best MotoGP rider currently in the world because he's got such a CD level bike, and he was still able to get seventh place out of it, and he should be very, very happy with that because you know this season you've seen why he's been where he's been when the bike's even remotely competitive or capable of holding its own he will be there yeah i think still peko's the best rider on the grid because what he's doing is unbelievable he has the same bike as Jorge martin and as john zarko and any other sinini and he's head and shoulders above of everybody so i still think if fabio was on the jacada i think he'd still be just as good if not better up for speculation i don't know leave it I in hope... the comments below who do you think's better <laughs> i hope to see it one day it would be great um yeah considering fabio's circumstances he's very good he had a very good start mm. and the race was just uh also very very good but i would like to to talk a little bit about Jorge martin because for mm-hmm. Jorge martin as sad as the situation with Peko is for Jorge Martin, this is a huge opportunity. We don't know how long Peko is uh, out, and we don't know how long it takes until Peko is at 100%. So uh, we have now a span of, I believe, seven races in like 13 weeks or whatsoever. It's a very, very tight schedule. I think and it's 10 and 12, but it, it is something like that. I don't know, but it's a very tight schedule, mm-hmm. and it's like the worst part of the season to have an injury yes he has a very good um advantage in a championship but he has now 50 points i believe this Mm -hmm. could melt down pretty easily if he's not at 100 and we saw with inia bastini how it affected his uh, his season because he is a very good rider remember last year we were talking about him uh, potentially winning the championship at one point and him being so incredibly good he uh he won races with a year old Ducati and was so good that they jumped Martin, that he jumped Jorge Martin in line to the factory seat. But now, after his injury in Portimao, he's never been the same. And I think it's a good move that Ducati gives him another year because it would be unfair, in my opinion, to judge him on this first half of the season. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I think this is a huge opportunity for Jorge Martin to uh, be competitive because he's on the best bike on the grid. He's doing good at the moment. And if he sorts out his qualifying and sorts out all the other stuff that is uh, holding him back now, that then he can make like a difference over the next five races, let's say, and uh, close in on Peko. And then it could get interesting. 
Yeah, it's a great point to make. Um, for Jorge Martin, this is certainly a huge opportunity in terms of his championship charge. You know, we have Mizano next, and Jorge Martin tends to love going around Mizano. And assuming Peko's not there, which I would be shocked if he was, uh, but I, I don't think he will be. So assuming Peko's not at Mizano, it's a huge opportunity for Jorge Martin to pick up some big points and really eat into that lead. <laughs> Excuse me. And yeah, you know, Jorge Martin, like you said, he's on what I consider to be the best bike on the grid, the Pramac Ducati. He's obviously at one with that bike. I mean, the the images from Saturday, I think it was, no, was it Saturday or was it Friday? The images of him with his shoulder actually rubbing on the track. I mean, it, it, it's unbelievable what that kid can do on the bike. It's, it's otherworldly. But these next two, three weeks are going to be crucial for Jorge Martin because if he can continue this form and this momentum, he really could build up ahead of steam and he really could eat into Paco Banyaya's uh, points total. If he can do that, then we have a title race on our hands and he is more than talented enough to do it. Whether he will or not, I don't know, but I'm very excited to see how it goes. Yes, the thing with Paco is I believe it's depends so much on what they do to cure it i mean if he just has some bruises it's very possible that he can race in misano maybe not at 100 but if they have to um if to if they have to drain any blood or like do surgery on him then it's very unlikely mm -hmm. but it just depends i don't know if there are any uh muscle uh, ruptures or whatsoever so we don't know or muscle tears i believe it's called right mm -hmm. yeah so um it all depends on this one but i believe in the next like five weeks let's say it's a five week window until Paco's back at a 100 could be three weeks could be 10 weeks we don't know mm -hmm. but let's pretend it's five in those five weeks we will really know what Jorge martin is made out of because this is now his opportunity to win a moto gp world championship and if he can make the best out of these unfortunate circumstances then he shows the world that he should have gotten a factory seat because he's always been very vocal about this mm -hmm. but if he continues to struggle if he continues to be inconsistent and then there's no argument for him over in here you know Yeah, no, it's a really great point to make. And the storyline is there from last year and it continues into this year. And really going off the five-week gauge, which I think taking that middle period of time is a good gauge to use. The next five weeks are going to tell us a lot about Jorge Martin because outside of Enea, by default being the other factory rider, Jorge Martin's really flying the flag for Ducati for the next few weeks. He's really the stalwart that we'll be representing. And if he can take advantage of the next five weeks, and look, I'm not saying he has to win every race and every sprint race, but if he shows up impressively, and I'm talking podiums across the next few weeks, then that narrative does get stronger and Jorge Martin can say, look, I'm here. I told you I'm, I'm your guy for the factory. It's not an A, it actually was me. But with Paco potentially, I was certainly not being a hundred percent for the next few weeks. This is a big opportunity for Jorge Martin. And I hope he realizes how big of an opportunity it is. 
because if he can take advantage, he can really make some things happen for himself. But it's a storyline that if you're watching this podcast, I would be paying attention to because I know we both will be. And I, th I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. Yeah, and remember last season and all the seasons before, you had to win two races while the other one was out for uh, an injury, and mm -hmm. you'd uh, cut in in the 50-point deficit. Now you have 37 points per race weekend, so you can really do something with the sprint races, and you don't have to win every race, but just be consistent and cut into that lead uh, that Paco has, and yeah, we will see what he's made out of, and uh, I'm very excited, uh, just talking about it, I'm very excited to see what happens with the Pramac and the Grisini seat, because it's still very weird to me that there is no official announcement yet. So... It is weird, isn't it? But I guess uh, things just take a lot longer this season than in previous seasons, and I like it because uh, when you when you remember in 2018 they announced that Jorge Lorenzo will depart Ducati after Le Mans, and then he went on to win Catalonia and Mugello, and then you think, okay, why did you give him only five races to prove himself in this season? You know, yeah. So. Um, I guess it's a good thing for everybody. You don't want to see stuff like what happened with Remy last season, where he's uh, out after half the season, you know, after Austria. So, and also the whole Raul Fernandez uh, thing is very interesting as well, because there are rumors that he might be going back down to Moto2. So it's a strange thing, because if I was him, I would defend my MotoGP seat at all costs. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, if he isn't happy and wants to be back in Moto2 where he was so competitive, but in my opinion, he can only lose because he can go back to Moto2 and build himself up again and be successful again to just go to MotoGP again. So what's the point when you're already there? Will you get a bike which is more competitive than the Aprilia? Probably not. Or let's say unlikely because Ducati is more or less closed and the other manufacturers you don't really want to be at. And and the whole KTM door has closed for him. Mm -hmm. So what what's there to gain for Raul Fernandez when he can prove himself again next year in MotoGP and be maybe a little bit more competitive? Because remember, it's his fourth bike in four years. I mean, in 2020, he was in Moto3, then in Moto2, then on the KTM, and now on the Aprilia. Mm -hmm. So give the man a little bit of consistency. He's very good, even though he's a dickhead. But yeah, I, I don't really understand uh, what benefit there is for him to go back to Moto2. Yeah, I don't get it either. Be moral and... champion again. <laughs> Yeah, somebody actually made a really funny comment and they said he is the chance to be the first ever two-time moral champion of two different classes, <laughs> which I thought was very funny. Um, So whoever you are, you know who you are. Shout out to you for that comment because that was very funny. It really made me chuckle. Um, But yeah, the Raul Fernandez situation is very interesting because he's on a great bike. You know, he's on a satellite at Prilia, which is a very, very good bike. The RNF team, they're making a lot of growth. They're making a lot of gains. And I think being alongside someone like Miguel Oliveira, you're going to learn a lot from him. So if I was Raul Fernandez, I would be hoping that these rumors are just rumors. I wouldn't be moving back down to Moto2. 
Yeah, but the thing is, there's no smoke without fire. And that is true. He has apparently he has a contract for next year. So mm -hmm. if he is indeed willing to move to Moto 2, it's his choice because he can always say, Hey, I have a contract, like Paul has, you know. Yeah, that, that's very true. He can always pull rank and say, listen, I'm contracted for 2024. If I was Raul Fernandez, though, I mean, look, to be honest, Raul Fernandez isn't the most rational fellow in the world. Um, I think we've seen this from the Remy season. But if I was him or if I was somebody in his camp advising him, give yourself next year in the Aprilia. You know, it's tough enough to get into MotoGP as it is. It's much more tougher to try and get back in once you've already been in. You know, Sam Lowe's couldn't do it. There's a bunch of riders who couldn't do it, who've had a taste, were out again and couldn't get back in. And I think especially being an RNF Aprilia, I certainly wouldn't be jumping. Like if you were on a Honda, fair enough, I get why you want to jump ship. Because that's just a shit storm over in Japan. But if you're on a European bike, it makes no sense to go back down to Moto 2 at this point. And the thing is, <coughs> excuse me, Moto 2 is only going to be more competitive next year as well. You know, there's no guarantee that you'll go back, smoke everybody else, and then go back up like you just said. I think if you're Raul Fernandez, you're in a great spot. You're contracted for next year with Aprilia. Stick with Aprilia get some momentum going and then see where 2025 and beyond takes you. And like you said as well, and this kind of leads into a different point. If you've had four bikes in four years, then you can start to be seen as the problem by a lot of manufacturers who would take you on. You know, we already saw the fallout from Remy winning the Moto2 title, you know, him constantly complaining that, you know, moral champion, blah, blah, blah. If you've been on four bikes in four years, there's no guarantee that another manufacturer will want to deal with you. So if I'm Raul Fernandez, if I'm somebody advising Raul Fernandez, stick with RNF. They're a great outfit. It's a great bike. Learn from people like Miguel Oliveira and you will have a good year next year. Don't jump ship when you have a good chance here. The thing is, when he goes down to Moto2, and let's pretend he wins the championship, you already have a body of work in MotoGP, which is not very convincing. That, that is true. Might lead manufacturers to not pick you up mm -hmm. or not be as interested as they would be, for example, in somebody like Pedro. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I don't really get the benefit there to go back to Moto2, but also I don't know everything about his current situation. So, I don't know, maybe the team is shit. Maybe he's, he's severely depressed and doesn't want to be there. So, if it's for his personal well-being, okay, go back. But like from a career perspective, I don't see it. I don't see it either. And look, there's no shame. In, if you want to go down to Moto2, go down to Moto2, go to IOKTM or no, wherever. This, this door is closed. Or, oh, sorry. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I apologize. It is closed. You're right. The point I'm making is if you want to go down to Moto2, go down to Moto2, do whatever you want to do. But it, with the situation you're in, it from a practical point of view it makes no sense to go back down to try and come back up again what are you going to do try and go to a different manufacturer i mean you're not going to go to jacati you're not going to go to ktm the aprilia really is the best option for you on the grid it's a great bike elation maverick have proven it's a great bike you have the chance to pick up that mantle and continue that development for the next five ten years if they keep you 
I see no point in leaving Aprilia. I think they're a good manufacturer. I think they've got good people with their heads screwed on as well who are only going to help you get better. Don't jump ship from this. If it was Honda or Yamaha, I would get it, but not Aprilia. And there's always somebody who takes his seat. I mean, Jake Dixon has a, mm. a contract for Moto2 next year, but Tony Abolino has a contract, but I'm very sure there's like a clause in this contract where you say, okay, if a MotoGP team knocks on your door, you can go. Yeah. There's like an opting out uh, out of this contract. And um, talking about Jack Dixon, I mean, he's performing very, very well at these recent uh, races. And I think it would be extremely beneficial for Dorna to have a Brit in MotoGP, even though he is very ridiculous. And even if he has a very good performance like today, I mean, he was so good. And to manage his tires while he kept his composure, then to just talk shit about Pedro, who's like 50 points ahead of you in the championship, is just ridiculous. I mean, the dude should be forbidden to talk to a journalist who has a microphone. I mean, just keep oh. him away from microphones because he is just making himself look stupid. I mean, yes, he beat Pedro. Technically, yes, he's still in the championship. Does he really believe? Does he really believe that he's competitive to Pedro? And then to be in a position, I mean, if he believes it, it's one thing, but to be in a position to talk shit about him <laughs> in the post race interview, I mean, come on. Eh. It, oh, it's just so hard. It's so hard to like him. Oh, my God. On I. He... Jake Dixon is the only rider I know who can snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. On <laughs> what are you doing, man? What are you doing? I mean, I I watched Moto Two live, right? As we both did, I was watching Moto Two live, and what a brilliant race, by the way! Amazing, phenomenal, one of the best races in Moto Two this season. You've got your second win in the class. You know, the Aspar team love you. You're signed for next year. Things could not be going better for Jake Dixon. And what does he go and do? He goes on the microphone and says, yeah, you know that guy that's the next Mark, Mark Marquez? I just beat him. Ha ha, ha ha ha. You know, what an asshole. What asshole behavior. I don't, I don't mean to sort of stereotype people. But if the English ever wonder why you're hated abroad by Europeans and Americans and so on, this is why. This is the kind of behavior that makes people hate you, okay? You can never just accept what you've got. You can never just be happy in the moment. You've always got to take it to the next step, and you've always got to take it one step too far. Just go ahead. Just... I, I can't even believe I have to explain this to Jake Dixon. Just go out, say you're happy with your win, thank your God, and then go up on the podium and take your first place trophy, okay? Don't go out and trash the guy who's 50, 60 points ahead of you. What part of you is thinking at the moment? You know, I, do you know what this is? You know that meme of the guy who gets his medal and he kisses the girl with the flowers and then yeah. there's like 10 people ahead of him? That's Jake Dixon, okay? Yeah. You know, he's won the medal, great. We're all very happy for you, brilliant performance. And then you go out and you make yourself look like a donut again. 
you know, yeah. you go out and win the first time. You make yourself look like an idiot. You have the Darren Bender incident. You make you okay, that was entertaining. I give you that one. But today, you just make yourself look like a fool, Jake, honestly. Now, the only thing I will give him credit for is he paid tribute to Paul Bird, uh, the former Ducati British Superbike uh, winning team manager. And that was lovely. That's a shame nobody gave Paul Bird a tribute. He deserved that. But as far as that, Jake, I mean, come on, man. You're better than that. At least I hope you're better than that. And if these are the kind of antics that's going to go on, no MotoGP team is going to want to touch you if you're going to go out and insult the next Jesus Christ of MotoGP. I mean, come on. That's that's the thing. I mean, um, if you're Conor McGregor and knock out Jose Aldo in 16 seconds, you're allowed to talk shit, yes. But yeah. if, you, if you're Conor McGregor and get smoked by Khabib and submitted in the third round. You should talk shit. And that's like the difference. I mean, if you want to come out and talk shit about somebody, okay, let's let's be competitive first. And then, you know, I mean, and not just competitive in one race, competitive over a season because this isn't a sprint, this is a marathon. And we get a lot of different tracks now, a lot of overseas races where a lot of uh, stuff can happen. So maybe keep calm and... If you want to talk shit, back it up, please. Yeah. You know what this is? And you'll appreciate this. And any fight fans who are here, you'll appreciate this as well. This is Tito Ortiz chatting shit to Chuck Liddell when he beats him when they're both 60. You lost both fights in your prime. Nobody cares about you. You drag him out of retirement and beat him, and then you claim you're better than him. That's not what this is, Jake. You're 60 points behind this young guy who's like six years younger than you. And you, yeah, fair enough. You had a great performance. You did very well. I'm not taken away from that. But don't try and claim you beat Petro Acosta. He's winning the championship at the moment. He's like... He's damn near guaranteed to go into MotoGP and be the next superstar. Just take what you have and go from there, all right? You know, Maddie, if you're watching this, Maddie Patterson, please connect this guy to a better PR person because this guy's destroying himself. You need to connect him to a surgeon who just glues his mouth shut. <laughs> please connect him to somebody because this guy... He's 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 got a great opportunity in his career, and he's screwing it all up. Yeah. Please help him. Yeah, he's like the uh, Jeremy Stevens of MotoGP. Like, who yes. the fuck is that guy? <laughs> Jake Dixon is the Jeremy Stevens of Moto Two. I mean, I'm sure Pedro was looking at him, going, "Who's that?" <laughs> yeah, but um, I mean, if it wasn't for his nationality, he wouldn't be in the Moto Two paddock anyway. So no, uh... that I mean, that is a fact. That is just true. That's not me hating on Jake Dixon. I have no problem with Jake Dixon. I'm sure he's a lovely guy. But we all know where we stand here. Let's be honest. But to be fair, he developed very nicely and now he earned his spot. And yeah. he, and my, when you just consider the results and take out his utterly ridiculous personality, he also deserves a MotoGP seat. And Tony I, Abolino also deserves a MotoGP seat. I, I think saying he deserves a MotoGP seat is a little bit of a stretch at the moment, but he's been doing very well. This has been a great season for Jake, and he's really started to get to grips with it. The Aspar team is a great environment for him. The bike is very good for him. If he keeps doing this well, and he puts a real title challenge together, then yes, we have that discussion by all means. But Jake, 
crawl before you learn to walk walk before you learn to run you know don't just try and run after you've won a couple of races and go after pedro acosta they are not the same thing okay you know you've been doing really well keep developing and keep learning don't go after pedro acosta like that because you, you make yourself look stupid yeah but his racing has been phenomenal it has it's been very Over good the past it's been couple very of good. weeks And um, when you talk about Fabio Quattararo going to MotoGP, he didn't do as much as Jack Dixon did in Moto2. Mm -hmm. When you talk about uh, somebody like Fabio Giannatonio, he got a MotoGP seat. Darren Binder, he did jack shit in Moto2. He didn't even compete in Moto2. And um, I mean, I think it would be worth a shot. And when you have riders like Ligia or for the sake of it, Raul Fernandez. Um, do you really need another Spaniard there, another Italian who's just not cutting it? No, look, I think it's a great point to make. And if we're if we're balancing everything on all of its levels, I think it's a great discussion to have. And I think what makes the discussion better is that we are starting to get to a point where we're not going to give Dixon a seat just because he's British. We're going to give him a seat because he's actually deserved it and he's earned it. And that's a much more positive discussion to have because I don't want to talk about Jake Dixon only getting something because of his passport. I want him to be able to go to a manufacturer and say, listen, I've had a great season. I've done this, this, and this. I've earned my spot here. And if Dixon earns it like Cal Crutchlow earned it, then he deserves it. Give him his seat and give him his place. My problem with it is his attitude, and I think he needs to rein that in a bit because he's in a great space, he's in a great moment, and I don't want him ruining everything he's worked so hard for. He's won brilliantly at a tough place to win in Catalonia. He's had one of the best races in Moto2 battling with Aaron Canet. <laughs> By the way, he still hasn't won. Um, You know, he, he's had a great race. You know, don't... Let your actions speak for you. For the love of God, don't let your mouth speak for you because you don't come across well, Jake. <laughs> Aaron Canet. Oh, what the God. fuck was he doing in the last lap? I mean, it's difficult to judge from the outside how much in the limit he was. But I saw enough racing in my life to see riders in the exact same situation at the exact more or less limit to go for a move if it's if it's not happening it's not happening okay we can live with it if you crash you crash you don't need another second place but into turn 10 he was alongside jack dixon jack dixon pushed him out 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 but he was there and i think he could have made a move there and just boxed jack dixon out send him maybe a little bit wide so it's not unfair but just disturb his braking, disturb his line, and then you don't need the perfect corner entry, but you just don't need to crash, and then he's in the worst uh, position on the track because it's a long left hand and you have the inside. So why not? Why not? I mean, what do you have to lose? You have already a seat for next year. You now gained your <laughs> what's, what's like 12th or 13th uh, second place in the class. Congratulations. But come on, man, do something. I think he didn't want to run the risk of being the victim of Jake Dixon's rant. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> probably the reason. 
No, look, yeah. I yeah, you don't. Um, no, look, I I agree with you, and I think on a serious note, what we saw in that last lap is why Aaron Kana keeps finishing second. He doesn't have the killer instinct. He doesn't have the will to pull the trigger or twist the throttle and get up on the inside. You know, like you said. Aaron Cannett is in a, he, like Jake Dixon, but for a different reason. He's in a very good position. He has the seat for next year. He is 11, now 12 second place positions in Moto 2. You don't need another second place position, Aaron. You need a first place position. You need to have the courage to dive up the inside, go for it. And look, you know what? If you've been it, you've been it. At least you tried. But don't settle for, you don't need second. Go for the win. The win is there. It's in front of you. You can wear your little bolo tie when you win. It's all there for you. Go for the win, Aaron. And I was so frustrated watching this race because I actually, I'm just going to be honest, I wanted Aaron Cannon to win. Not just to end the memes, because like we love the memes. He gives us a lot of good content. But for his career, to see him win a race would have been brilliant. But what you saw is why he can't get the job done. He just doesn't have, he will not pull the trigger. And that's a problem. When you're in that position, you've got to go for it all. You got to roll the dice. If you lose, you lose. No one's going to criticize, well, Jake Dixon's going to criticize you, but no one else is going to criticize you if you roll the dice and you come up short. But if you roll the dice, you could have won. That race was there. It was in the palm of your glove and you didn't go for it. And I, I was more disappointed than anything because seeing Aaron Cannett finally win would have been great. It would have been a great story for the paddock. It would have been a great story for the class. But look, to be honest, out of anybody, the real moral champion of Moto2 is Aaron Cannett because he has the most second place finishes out of anybody. But on a serious note, <clears throat> I'm disappointed for Cannett because... It, it was there, and it was more there than it's ever been. Yeah, and uh, I would like to give a quick shout-out to Albert Arenas, Sergio Garcia, and Manu Gonzalez, because mm -hmm. they did phenomenal. Very and, good. Uh, considering where they're coming from, like past results and all of this stuff, very, very good. And also Catalonia is such a different uh, race because you just can't go all out. You have to really manage your tires, and Pedro fell victim to it. Um, I mean, he started from P9. He was very good towards the beginning of the race. He even uh, got himself into the lead. But um, then after Aaron Canet overtook him, he just went backwards and then the whole stupid uh, Alonso situation occurred. Oh, God. Um, which was just reckless, in my opinion. And um, yeah, I, I think Alonso Lopez is a very capable rider. I mean, he's so incredibly fast, but he's just in certain situations not mentally stable, where he's just doing reckless stuff, and uh, you can't do this. I mean, what if Pedro crashed today because of this incident, and then we would he's be He's lucky talking... he didn't. Yeah, I mean, and also I'm very happy that... Um, the stewards didn't enforce this stupid one-second rule on either Maverick and Pedro because they were both pushed out by somebody. So I think they have every right to use the exit and uh, yeah. not 
um, and not be punished for it because Maverick didn't lose a second. 100% he didn't lose a second. Mm -hmm. And um, Pedro, in my opinion, also didn't lose a second, but I'm not quite sure, just from the looks of it. And um, I think Pedro learned a lot. I mean, he had a very difficult race towards the end, but he showed the maturity like Alonso Lopez doesn't have, you know, where he yeah. said, okay, it's over. I just pick up a uh, sixth position and then we will go. <laughs> you just said basically, okay, I will take this and off we fuck, go to Misano and try again. Yeah, absolutely. And what you saw today, more what you saw from Alonso Lopez was his big shortcoming that he has. And that shortcoming is he has no racing IQ whatsoever. Brilliant, brilliant young rider. Don't get me wrong. Talented beyond anything. But his racing IQ is non-existent. And, that, and that's a big problem because having a non-racing IQ when you're racing doesn't just affect you. It affects the riders around you. And unfortunately, today, Pedro Acosta was the one that it affected. And, I mean, just recklessly careening and slamming into Pedro Acosta was stupid beyond belief. It really, really was. Um, and I don't know how they're going to punish him, but they need to punish him for it. Um, as for Pedro, um, I thought he had a very good race today. He started in P9, as you said, from the third row was in the lead at one point and was challenging for the podium for a large part of the race. I think tires just got to him. Like you said, he started dropping down the positions, but picking a P6 from where he was, I think he'll be more than happy with that. He'll be happy to take those points, especially with where Tony Arbolino finished outside the points. He'll take that on to Mizano and he'll challenge for the win there. Um, But the difference between a Pedro Acosta and an Alonso Lopez, what you saw was world championship mentality and racing IQ. That is the difference between those two. Yeah. And uh, Pedro did a calculated job because uh, Tony Abolino took a shit at the back of the grid. And... I mean, I don't know what he was doing there. He has no business in battling with Zonda, but um, he should have at least gotten in the top 10. I mean, you can't really want to, you can't uh, uh, carry yourself like a title favorite and you can't be appealing to MotoGP uh, teams if you are so inconsistent. And I think his pace really dropped in the last couple of races, which is unfortunate. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, Moto Two was a very entertaining race, and we didn't know what the fuck was going on, but <laughs> uh, we didn't know what the fuck was going on even less in Moto Three, which was a crazy race. <laughs> and I would like to talk to you about the Dennis Enchu and uh, David Munoz incident. So please tell me uh, your opinion about uh, the Turkish terrorist and David Divebomb Munoz. Jesus Christ, I get down on my knees every weekend and I thank the Lords for Moto3. I love this class so much. Just every weekend there's something, there's just something that entertains you. And look, I'm not... I'm not advocating for attempted vehicular manslaughter by Dennis Anshu, but it was a little bit funny, okay? It was. I'm sorry. You know, Davin Munoz has wrecked many, many people's races this year. And 
to see Dennis Anshu of all people just come like an RKO from out of nowhere and just hit David Munoz from the back. I mean, it was very, very funny. It was very entertaining. But I mean, look, from the Turkish terrorist point of view, it was very reckless. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It was kind of 2020 Dennis Anshu all over again, just coming in, not giving a shit, and just smashing into anybody who happens to be there. Um, I, I gotta say, I enjoyed it. I did enjoy it, but look, he's gonna get punished. He, it'll probably be he a got long punished. Lap. Double long lap uh, for oh, this right. race, but he couldn't uh, serve yeah. it, so it was a six-second penalty. Yeah, you're right. Sorry. Um, he, with with all the penalties that could have and should have been today, I kind of forgot. But yeah, he got his penalty. But I I have to say, not that I advocated it happening, but God, it was funny. It really yeah. did make me chuckle for a minute. <laughs> Honestly, I was screaming in my living room yeah. and laughing because, like, I don't really like David Munoz because he is just dangerous, and I I just don't like it. I mean. He wiped out people in the Rookies Cup where he, you you should look this up. I believe it was in 2021 in the Rookies Cup, but mm -hmm. I'm not sure. 2021 in Germany. I don't remember if it's race one or race two, but uh, an Italian guy won because David Munoz in the first corner, just whatever he was thinking, he would just play bowling with the entire front group. And you saw it in the World Championship. Dangerous move after dangerous move, taking riders out, injuring riders. It's just crazy. I mean, he has no chill and he is extremely talented, but extremely dangerous. And I don't like it at all. I mean, it's nothing personal, but I just don't like his riding style. And it's just an injury waiting to happen. So what bums me out is if a rider gets taken out, but if it's David Munoz, I think it's funny and I may be biased here <laughs> because I think if the roles were reversed and if David Munoz just uh, did what Dennis Andrew did, I would be uh, I would have a different um, opinion yeah. on it. But I never claim to be unbiased. I'm not unbiased. And I thought it was <laughs> fucking hilarious. And I could make an argument for a racing incident because... Um, David Alonso and Jaume Masia passed both David Munoz. This this got already got me excited because I thought, damn, you fuck it, you don't win. Nah? <laughs> and uh, then they both passed him and he went wide and came back onto the racing line. And if you watch it closely, Dennis Enchu was ahead. And he was on the racing line and David Munoz was wide. So I don't necessarily think that he should have gotten a penalty for it because it's a racing incident. It's Model 3. Everywhere is chaos. And <laughs> then you see like a gap. You you, you are hanging off of the right-hand side of your bike. You see the racing line. You see that there's a gap and there's nobody. And then from the outside, somebody comes and they touch after Dennis Ernstu overtook him. I mean, it's not like Dennis Ernstu rammed into him where he clearly saw him. He was in front of him. And... um. Yes, I would make a total different argument if it was David Munoz who took somebody out. I mean, imagine the rant if David Munoz took out Kelso for the podium. And oh, uh, God. Yeah, we would have be a different conversation here. But mm -hmm. I never claimed to be biased. I could make an argument for a racing incident, but I'm very well aware that it's uh, up for speculation and it depends hugely on who the rider is and who gets taken out because I thought it was hilarious that... Uh, 
David Munoz got taken out because like what comes around goes nee, what goes around comes around and he fucking deserved it I mean he's taken out so many riders that it's just hilarious to see and um, yeah I think Dennis Enchu had a right to go for the gap if you no longer go for a gap you're no longer a racing driver and if you no longer go for a gap that doesn't exist uh, you're no longer David Munoz so I I think Dennis Entry had every right to do what he did. And uh, <laughs> it was so incredible. I love Dennis Entry. I mean, he went from insulting me in my comment section in 2021 to now being uh, one of my heroes in Model 3. I mean, yeah. he, he is such a menace and <laughs> it's absolutely crazy. Uh, I, j- I just love it. I mean, I'm all for here here for it. I would uh I totally understand him being frustrated out of his perspective, but I mean yeah, Jose Antonio Reda got his first podium and David <laughs> Munoz uh got taken out. I'm very happy with that, so I can live <laughs> with it. <laughs> all of the good days work in the Moto 3 car, yeah. I'll say. No, I, I just last part in this bit of promise, and then we'll move on. It's just I was watching the race, yeah, and I, I saw um David Munoz out wide, and I thought something's gonna happen here. Because <laughs> anytime that boy is out wide, something happens to somebody. And it's just usually I'm very stoic and I'm serious when somebody crashes because it is a serious matter. It's just I saw the KTM coming and I thought, <laughs> that's fucking on shoot. There's nobody else. There's no way that is an on shoot. I started <laughs> crying, laughing that it was Dennis on shoot. Oh, God. That might be uh, my moment of the year so yeah, far. The fact I that was, it was Dennis on I was so happy that he took out David Munoz. It's crazy. Yeah. No idea. How fucking stupid is Danny Algado? Oh, oh boy. I, I believe he touched the white line because I can't explain it to me any other because his rear just <laughs> slipped away and he was gone and he was in a good situation for the championship. Just pick up points, everything's fine, but it looks like. And back to the point uh, with Raul Fernandez I was trying to make, I just remember next year we have different tires in Moto2 and Moto3, so there is no guarantees that you will be good on those Pirelli tires next year. And uh, for Raul Fernandez, there's no guarantee he will be good in Moto2 again with the Pirelli tires. With uh, Daniel Gado, there's no guarantee he will be good in Moto3 again with the Pirelli tires. And I think if you can win a championship now, please do it. Because it's yeah. pretty uh, impressive to win a championship. And look at Ayagura. He thought basically last year, yeah, we'll win it next year. But then Pedro Acosta and his wrist injury uh, both came along. And um, yeah, I don't know what he was doing there. But uh, I mean, it's crazy. And when, when my my best example for this is Lorenzo Baldassari. He was dominating everybody in 2019. Then they changed the rear tire from a 190 to a 200. And now he was gone. And now he's in World uh, Super Sport. And, no, in World Superbike he's now. But um, my point is, there's no guarantees in motorsport. Please don't be stupid if you have like a 40 or 50 point lead. And Moto3 is so chaotic. Be consistent and everything will be fine. 
Yeah, I mean, with a with a class that's as chaotic by nature as Moto Three, all you have to do is be consistent, and you will probably win the title. That's all you have to do. That's what Pedro Acosta did last year. All he did was was be consistent, finish towards the front in every race, and was in the position to potentially battle for wins, and he won the title. You do not have to go out and try and prove a point in Moto Three. Just go out, ride your race, and you'll be in the mix towards the end of the season. And I'm glad you brought up this point with Danny Holgado because I'm really surprised by what's happened to him. I thought he was the favorite this year. Um, he was really one of my favorites this year for the championship, and it just hasn't worked out at all. I and mean, like, he leads the championship with like 30 points or whatsoever, so... Yeah, but I thought it'd be a bigger gap than it was. I really thought he would blow everybody else away. It's sort of the, yes, you're right, he does lead, but it's kind of, I thought he'd really be so far ahead by now. But then to be fair, maybe that's an unfair expectation on my part because Moto3 is so chaotic, anybody can win. Maybe I need to rein in my expectations for the people who lead Moto3. Maybe Pedro has skewed my vision. I don't know. But with Danny Holgado, you do make a good point. With the tire changes coming in next year, there are no guarantees. You know, today's champion is tomorrow's bottom of the pile. You literally don't know. Look at so, Isan. Look at Isan Guevara. Exactly. Isan Guevara last year. At the moment. Yeah, Isan Guevara last year was on top of the world. This year, nobody knows where he is. The point is, is that you have to take advantage. If you are on top today, you have to take advantage of that. Otherwise, you're leaving it in the hands of the gods, and you never want to leave it in the hands of the gods or the stewards. You don't want to leave it in the hands of the stewards either. The point is, take advantage of your momentum today because you never know what tomorrow is going to bring. Yeah, I thought it was a very strange crash, but I mean, it is what it is. And I also think that Joel Kelso had like a very good first half of the race. Where he, mm -hmm. But he then fell down, fell down, fell down. And it looked like he was lacking a little bit of aggressiveness because you see somebody like David Munoz or Daniel Gado cutting through the field like it's nothing. And in Moto3, you just have to be aggressive. You have to be chaotic, but in a calculated way, you know, not like David Munoz is, you know. But um, yeah, I think he will learn from it. I hope he will get a seat next year because apparently he's out of uh, Brüssel. But yeah, I think he's just proving here and there how talented he really is. I mean, with the front row and his first couple of uh, of laps in Catalonia, he had this very good race in uh, Portimao. And there's always like this little glimpse of somebody who really has talent. And I think that if you give him a little bit of time, then uh, he can showcase his talent. Will he be uh, the next Mark Marquez, the next Pedro Acosta? Probably not. We don't know. Nobody thought Remy Gardner uh, would win a championship and nobody thought Alicia Spiral would win a race. So we really don't know. But I think that he definitely deserves another shot in Model 3 because after one and a half seasons now and after a season, after two seasons, you can't really judge somebody. Give him a little bit of time to develop. The dude is tiny. He's perfect for Model 3. So, um, I mean, I just hope he gets a Model 3 seat for next year and I hope uh, his future will be good. Yeah, I completely agree. 
And look, I love Joel Kelso as well. I think he's a very good young writer. I think he's a very gifted writer. And with Moto3, you know, we know this uh, from watching it probably better or as much as anybody. You know, it takes time to get used to the class. It takes time to grow into the bike and to grow around the bike as well. And I think Joel Kelso's done a really good job of that. I think especially this year, I think the growth and development that he's shown really has been substantial. Like you said, was very good today. Okay, he dropped off. Yes, I understand that. But he's shown that he can be there and he is capable of being in the mix. And that's all you can ask of these guys at the end of the day. You know, you can't expect every rider to be like Pedro Acosta and go out and win every single race in the rookie season. You know, give the kid some time, give him next year. And I think Joel Kelso could be really t a top five rider next year. Top five, top 10. I think he could be in this position, but give him a chance. Especially what's good for him is that they changed the uh, age uh, limitation. They, uh, You have to be 18 years old minimum now to be in Moto3, so not as many people are apparently coming through. Or like mm -hmm. mathematically, there should be like a one or two or three year period where not so many people are coming through because they are not old enough yet. And um, this should play in his hands to really be um, available for teams because there aren't so many other young riders coming up. And yeah, I just hope it will work out. I think it's good to have as many nationalities on the grid as possible. And he's not a Spaniard, so this is nice. And um, yeah, and I hope we can talk about uh, Joel Kelso's victory in Misano uh, next week. So uh, yeah, thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me, Keelan, and goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody. See you after Mizano.